Hello, and welcome to The X Degree, a podcast where we delve deep into the abyss of the internet to find a strange connection between two random things. My name is Eric Stafford. Today, we will be looking into a connection between the game of tag, a plight for all larger kids in elementary school, and Listerine, the antiseptic mouthwash that really lets you know you have things living in your mouth. Also, if you can hear birdsong behind this, uh, the birds in my neighborhood are out and about, and I cannot hide from them anywhere in my home. There are times when I look back at things from my childhood with a sense of wonder, not in a wistful romantic sense, more like a, wait, what? Like, why are kids obsessed with climbing trees? Or while playing, they form clusters and then dissolve into a large group again and then separate back out into smaller groups, like a flock of birds. Or why do kids feel the need to scream all the time when they are playing? I mean, I live near an elementary school and a large park, so I constantly hear them doing this, but it's just weird to me. And one of the reasons for the excessive screaming sometimes is the game of tag. And kind of unlike when we talked about rock, paper, scissors a few weeks ago, tag just seems like it's one of those innate animal things in us. We humans are hunters, far more capable of running long distances to catch prey than other hunters who are more into the sprint events. We can run longer, wait for the animals we're hunting to tire out, I mean, look at us, we have competitions of running 26 miles as fast as we can. Some people even go into the hundreds. So, at least to me, children playing a game where you chase each other like gazelles on the Serengeti and tag each other seems pretty baked in. It's one of those parts of human life that I wonder if it's built into us genetically or it's just part of our zeitgeist that we teach kids without knowing about it. Regardless, tag is not necessarily just a thing for kids. You may remember a while back, there was a story of 10 friends who started a game of tag in the 1980s and kept it up for close to 30 years. And of course, because this is the world we live in, the story was optioned by Warner Brothers and made into a movie. But I think this clip from the Netflix show BoJack Horseman best exemplifies my feeling to this even before the movie came out. As you two knuckleheads threw thousands of dollars into a bunch of dumb ideas. You paid 50 grand to a bunch of kindergartners for the movie rights to the game Tag. Our business manager was over the moon for that one. Funny enough, Jake Johnson in that clip is in the film of Tag. But while all of this is fun and good and kind of inane, something small happened in Windsor in, in England in 2012. Christian DeVoe was playing tag in his backyard with his brother Damien and their kids when one of them decided to play around with their new GoPro by putting it on a helmet. After deciding to leave hedge trimmings in in a bench in their yard during subsequent games of tag, the brothers realized that using the obstacles added a very interesting twist to the game that they were now filming. After a particularly rainy week, they decided to move the games into their local parkour gym and enlisted local athletes to play on their homemade scaffolding. One thing has led to another, And a few weeks ago, while scrolling on TV, I came across the brothers' full-grown idea come to fruition. World Chase Tag being aired on ESPN. And it's exactly what you'd think it is. A bunch of parkour athletes leaping over metal and plywood scaffolding, chasing each other, one athlete the chaser, the other a vader. And holy crap, it is so much fun to watch. I was watching a re-airing of the 2021 U.S. Championships of World Chase Tag, and during breaks into replays and the banners bordering the competition area, the ESPN logo was slightly changed. 
to be ESPN8. And here is where we dive our way towards Listerine. A city home to a sporting event greater than the World Cup, World Series, and World War II combined. Live from Las Vegas, it's the Las Vegas International Dodgeball Open here on ESPN 8, The Ocho, bringing you the finest in seldom seen sports from around the globe since 1999. If it's almost a sport, we've got it here. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this year's annual Las Vegas International Dodgeball Open, brought to you exclusively here on ESPN 8, The Ocho. This is a scene from the 2004 film Dodgeball, a true underdog story and a joke that ESPN has really capitalized on. Starting in 2017, ESPN began airing annual ESPN 8 marathons, including trampoline dodgeball, darts, disc golf, and roller derby, which was a godsend for them come March of 2020, when they used the disappearance of all sports as a reason to bring the Ocho back in May. At the time, I was watching Korean baseball and games of NBA horse, so watching a competitive stone-skipping competition was a flood of serotonin to my sports-deprived mind. But back to Dodgeball, one of the finest comedies ever made. And if you haven't seen it, it's about a down-on-his-luck gym owner who tries to win a Dodgeball tournament to keep his gym open with a group of misfits that they compete against, like, D-bags from another gym. It's weird. But just before the climactic final face-off, the leader of the good guys decides to quit and heads to the airport to head home where cyclist Lance Armstrong happens to sit next to him and calls him an inspiration. You know, once I was thinking about quitting when I was diagnosed with brain, lung, and testicular cancer all at the same time. But with the love and support of my friends and family, I got back on the bike, and I won the Tour de France five times in a row. But I'm sure you have a good reason to quit. So what are you dying from that's keeping you from the finals? Right now feels a little bit like shame. Well, I guess if a person never quit when the going got tough, they wouldn't have anything to regret for the rest of their life. Good luck to you, Peter. I'm sure this decision won't haunt you forever. And all of this is while Lance Armstrong was arguably the greatest cyclist in the world, about to win seven Tour de France titles in a row, all after he recovered from testicular cancer at the age of 25. And after retiring in 2005, Armstrong re returned to racing in 2009 and then retired for good in 2011 under investigation for doping by the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency, leading to formal accusations of doping in 2012. And we all know what happens after that. The cutting of the yellow bracelets, Oprah, yada, yada, yada. But I want to go back to the Tour de France, probably the most well-known cycling race in the world. I mean, let's be real, it's probably the only cycling race that most of us know about. Originally started in 1903 as a competition between two sports magazines to gain readership for big-ticket events, the initial race was so daunting that only 15 competitors signed up. The original plan was to for the race to take a little over a month, with racers traveling from Paris to Lyon, Marseille, Bordeaux, and Nantes before returning to Paris. Riders would race through the night and had to pay their way through the race and on their break days. The organizers decided to change the race to just 19 days and paid the racers a daily allowance if they exceeded an average pace of 12 miles an hour, they would get about the same pay they would make while working on a factory floor. The first race attracted over 60 men from professional cyclists to amateurs to people who were just unemployed and knew how to ride a bike. The first winner was Maurice Guerin, who completed the 2,428 kilometer, or just over 1,500 miles, in 94 hours, 33 minutes, and 14 seconds. 
For reference, the 2021 Tour de France was won by Slovenian Tardej Pokar, who completed the longer 3,414 kilometers, about 2,100 miles, in just under 83 hours. But ever since the inaugural race, the Tour has grown in international audience and renown, only taking a break during the two world wars that, you know, would have been kind of hazardous for riding bikes across France. The format of the Tour has changed a little bit awarding points for different racing classifications. The general classification, the famous yellow shirts you are probably imagining, is for the fastest completion of all the stages. Another award is for the speed of hill and mountain climbing, denoted by a lovely red polka dot shirt. Sprint time trials are awarded in green, the best young rider wears white, and there's a couple others. In my favorite classification, the Lantern Rouge, the rider in the back of the pack. Named after the red lantern that would be hung from the last car in the train, the Lantern Rouge now sometimes dangles a small red light from under his biking saddle, and sometimes there's a huge competition of who can finish last in a race, because sometimes you will earn more publicity and sponsorship deals by being the Lantern Rouge than if you were just like, you know, the third guy to finish in the back. But the Tour is not the only sport or competition that gives recognition for the back of the pack. A common award given for the worst team in rugby, rowing, and some soccer leagues is the Wooden Spoon Award. It was originally used as a tongue-in-cheek award at Cambridge College, where the student who had the worst test scores but still got their degree in mathematics was awarded a hilariously large engraved wooden spoon, like a real human-sized spoon. I've included a photo on the Instagram of the last awarded wooden spoon in 1909 to Cuthbert Lampierre Holthouse, which is inscribed with the poem in Greek. In honors mathematical, this is the very last. The wooden spoon which you see here, oh, you who see it, shed a tear. It's so fucking amazing. <laughs> but across the UK and Ireland, Australia and New Zealand, and even in the Canadian Premier League and the US MLS, the Wooden Spoon is a ceremonial, at least you tried, award. But back to racing. Another sporting event that uses the Red Lantern as a de designation for the last person in the race is the Iditarod Trail Sled Dog Race in Alaska. Every March, more than 50 teams of 12 to 14 sled dogs converge on Anchorage to begin a multi-day voyage up through the interior of Alaska towards the northwestern coast town of Nome. The teams of Alaskan Malamutes and Siberian Huskies tear through the snow day after day on courses of either 998 or 975 miles, depending on the route chosen for that year. Races usually last anywhere from 8 days to 20 back in the 1970s. And the names of the winning lead dogs are absolutely adorable. Past winners include Hotfoot, Nugget, Granite, Furlin the Husky, Tyrone, Elmer, Hobo, Guinness, Diesel, Bark, and Slater, and oh, it's amazing. Um, there, I guess, there are a couple humans in the races too. I don't, I don't know. It's, it's more about the dogs. The route of the trail is the majority of the Iditarod Trail, a Bureau of Land Management maintained tra maintained trail connecting Seward to Nome, comprising of old supply and emergency routes for the Alaskan Gold Rush, that just so happened to also pass along and through lands and routes used by Native Alaskans. But after the initial gold rush was abandoned and only people like, you know, Jack London thought about Alaska, and even though there were still some people living up there, the trail was mostly forgotten. That is until 1925, 
when a major outbreak of diphtheria threatened the nearly 1,500 citizens of Nome and the 10,000 people in the surrounding areas who relied upon the city. A massive freeze blocked the port city's access to the Bering Sea, and widely spreading cases of diphtheria caused massive panic throughout the Northern Territory and created a need to get antitoxin to the citizens of Nome to stem the outbreak. This was back when diphtheria had a, eh, definitely more than 50% mortality rate. With no way to get to the isolated city other than mail routes, the administration of the territory formed a plan. A sled team would leave Nome heading east. Another team would form in the city of Nanana, the closest railroad terminus to Nome, and head west. The team in Nanana would collect the 300,000 units of antitoxin that remained in Anchorage, being sent by train, and relay the canisters in roughly 25-mile segments to Nome. Although this was less than the 1 million doses requested and actually organized in Seattle, the larger amount wouldn't make it in time, and the team would have to make do with the 300,000 units un until they could deliver more. On January 27, 1925, at 9 p.m., the relay began. The 20-pound canister containing the serum ampules set out on the 674-mile race from Nanana towards Nome, in minus 50 degree Fahrenheit temperatures. The temperatures then began to plummet, reaching minus 62 degrees Fahrenheit. The relayers and their dogs experienced frostbite on the, in their hands actually freezing to the handlebars of their sleds, with some dogs tragically dying very early in the relay. By the morning of January 29th, the outbreak was nearing an explosion point in Nome, and news of the mad dash reached mainland US newspapers. The relay continued through ice fog over frozen rivers and lakes and traced the edge of the Yukon River, always heading west. Several more dogs died, but the serum was steadily moving closer to Nome with every handoff. As it reached the Norton Sound just south of Nome, the relays were hit with a massive storm, causing whiteouts and numerous frostbites at minus 70 degrees Fahrenheit. That day, January 30th, the last antitoxin was used in Nome. Leonard Seppla, a recent sledding champion, had raced east through the storm to collect the serum and return it to Nome, and was shocked to run into the relay on January 31st outside the small town of Shaktukalik, I think, a hundred miles closer than he was originally planning to meet the serum. Seppala then turned around and raced back towards Nome, traversing over the frozen Norton Sound with windchilled temperatures reaching minus 85 degrees Fahrenheit. The team's lead dog, Togo, is credited with delivering the team in an almost perfect straight line across the sound back to land, covering 84 miles in a single day. Togo then led the team across the coast, narrowly missing breaking ice sheets, and the serum was passed along again, as the number of cases was reaching the number of people who could be treated with the antitoxin en route. Finally, the serum passed to Dunner Kassen, who took his team, led by the dog Balto, through hurricane force winds that upturned the sled several times, forcing Kasten to suffer frostbite searching for the canister in the snow. But finally, on February 2nd, at 5.30 a.m., Balto led Kasten's sled into Nome, where the entire supply of serum was thawed and administered to sick patients. Not even a single ampule was damaged. The team of 20 sleds mushed by Europeans and native Alaskans had covered 674 miles in 127 and one half hours in temperatures that never reached above minus 40 degrees Fahrenheit and peaked at minus 85 with hurricane force winds and near blizzard whiteout conditions. The 1.1 million dose doses from Seattle were then delivered to Anchorage on February 8th and all doses were delivered again 
by dog sled to Nome by February 15th. Only six people are listed as deaths from the outbreak of diphtheria, but hundreds were infected in the outlying villages. But all new cases were quickly squashed by the new supply of antitoxin. Balto quickly became the biggest hero of the relay, receiving commendations from the U.S. Congress and President Coolidge, a bone key to the city from the mayor of Los Angeles, a statue in New York Central Park, and he was the inspiration for numerous medical and humane society organizations that sprung up. Togo was also lauded as a hero, selling out meet and greets in Madison Square Garden and received recognition and praises from Arctic explorers. Both dogs were given royal treatments until their deaths in, at 14 and 16, respectively. Both dogs were given royal treatments until their deaths at 14 and 16, respectively. And while I talked almost exclusively about the dogs here, it should be noted that almost all of the native Alaskan mushers were left out of press coverage and recognition, even though they completed two-thirds of the trip. Today, diphtheria antitoxin is no longer in use. Almost all health organizations on Earth now recommend the vaccine, leading to roughly 84% vaccination rate worldwide against diphtheria. But back in the 1890s, the diphtheria antitoxin was lauded by the medical journal The Lancet as, quote, the most important advance of the 19th century in the medical treatment of acute infectious disease. The first two designated antitoxins to be derived in the lab were the diphtheria and tetanus antitoxins, both developed by Emil Adolf von Behring. In essence, antitoxins are antibodies for a pathogen distilled from the blood of animals or from secretions from plants or bacteria. By delivering the antitoxin to a person affected with the disease, the new antibodies attach themselves to the infectious agent, either an invading bacteria or virus, allowing the patient's immune system to better fight and kill off the invaders. Antitoxins are super fucking important to the history of medicine. Von Berg developed these two antitoxins along with the entire Western theory of antitoxin therapy while working at the Institute for Hygiene at the University of Berlin in 1889. The institute was being run by arguably the best person to lead the upcoming 20th century into a better understanding of the influence of the microbiome on the world, Robert Koch. Koch is credited with identifying and distilling the causative agents of diseases ranging from tuberculosis to cholera to anthrax, and even helped influence the idea of acquired immunity, why we're able to fight pathogens better if we've already been exposed to them. Shout out to our memory T and B cells. His well-documented postulates for ascertaining the relationship between a pathogen and a specific disease are still used in modern immunology. He is even instrumental in the development of the Petri dish, named after his assistant, Julius Richard Petrie. Along with contemporary Louis Pasteur, Koch is widely regarded as the father of microbiology. I mean, we still use antitoxins as a cure for snake bites. And both of their works influenced, and were in turn influenced by, yet another contemporary in the world of stuffy white European national, natural sciences, Joseph Lister. Lister was a classically trained surgeon and pathologist, and if you've ever had any form of medical therapy involving a tool touching part of you, and you didn't later die from sepsis and a raging infection, you can thank Lister. From a dental cleaning to a simple blood draw to laparoscopic surgery to a joint replacement, all forms of medical interventions are now safer than they've ever been because of one thing, Lister's antiseptic systems. Lister began his research work delving into the causes of inflammation and control of blood vessel contraction and was profoundly influenced by Pasteur's theories and observations of germ theory, 
the fact that our entire world is run by microbes. And in 1865, Lister compounded on previous works in antiseptic surgeries to develop the use of carbolic acid to disinfect a wound. Lister applied a piece of cloth dipped in carbolic acid onto a compound fracture on an 11-year-old boy's femur and was shocked to discover that after several days, the boy's wound had not developed a serious infection and that the bone was healing without forming pus, which is a terrifying thing to assume that that's what he was expecting. So, yeah. Lister continued his research and instructed the surgeons training under him to wear clean gloves and wash their hands with a 5% carbolic acid solution before beginning surgery with tools that had also been clean and rinsed in carbolic acid. That seems so obvious to us today, but it was absolutely groundbreaking back then, and he actually faced some serious, like, pushback. Hence why there are signs in every restaurant bathroom instructing workers to wash their hands that you really hope are followed, even if they're covered in graffiti. And all of this is why, in 1979, the American surgeon Joseph Lawrence named his new surgical antiseptic after Lister. But after some time, the listed use of the product merged into oral care, and now we have the mouthwash, Listerine. Listerine has had an interesting path through its life. Originally used as a surgical antiseptic, it was later distilled and sold over the counter as a floor cleaner and treatment for gonorrhea. But it gained mass market presence when it was sold as a mouthwash, along with a very, very aggressive marketing campaign. Lambert Pharmacal, the company started by the first pharmacist to sell Lawrence's formula, took out ads in magazines and papers announcing an unknown epidemic across the 1920s world, chronic halitosis. Now, halitosis is a real thing. It's bad breath. And issues like chronic halitosis can be actual indicators of gum disease, tooth decay, acid reflux, and even issues with your sinuses, your GI tract, or your respiratory system. But what Lambert peddled was not these issues. They sold good old-fashioned body shame. Lamenting bachelors and bachelorettes were seen hiding from dinner parties and social events or being very openly but politely mocked and excluded from groups for having nasty breath. How could anyone love you if your breath stanky? But have no fear, my fellow smelly humans. There is hope, and it is this. We all stink all the time. And it's usually not as bad as we think it is. Up to 72% reported cases of halitosis are undetectable by others. As in, you think you have bad breath, but no one else notices. I'm not saying it's all a corporate lie and companies are selling us fear and shame that we must cleanse ourselves and we must rebel and be stinky and gross. A little. Excessive cleaning, detoxing, and scrubbing everything can actually damage good bacteria on your skin that's part of your immune system and bo is just exhales of bacteria living in the damp folds of our skin i mean yeah obviously brush your teeth keep your skin healthy wash your armpits and other folded areas of your body but you don't need to overdo it well there it is a sporty, doped, frostbitten, and aseptic route, but that's one way you can connect the game of Tag to Listerine. Thank you so much for listening. Special thanks to Vox's video interviewing the creators of World Chase Tag, BikeRaceInfo.com, being a part of my favorite classification of websites, ultra-specific and needed only by very few people, 
aseptic surgical techniques for letting me be alive today, and the Balto of Knowledge Wikipedia. Also, um, I'm gonna start saying this. Uh, if you can rate and review this, ugh, I hate that. I don't know, I don't even know why I'm doing this. Attention, I wish it went down, but didn't. The Lanterns Rouge of the NFL is the Mr. Irrelevant, the last player to be selected in the yearly draft. Since 1976, Mr. Relevant has been celebrated and even revered. The tradition began with former USC and Colt 49er wide receiver Paul Salata, who announced the pick at the drafts until 2013 when his daughter took over. The Saladas then host Mr. Relevant's family in Newport Beach for a week. They visit Disneyland and they have previous honorees roast the new member of the club. They even give him the Lozman Trophy, a fake Heisman Trophy of a guy fumbling a football. In 2021, Ryan Suckup became the first Mr. Irrelevant to play in and win a Super Bowl when he kicked four extra points and a field goal for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Stay safe out there.